guy. Ever wonder what it's like to face a 350-pound lineman who wants to smash you into the ground? I know what that feels like. Scott Mitchell here, and I want to tell you about my podcast, Helmets Off, where I talk about the pressures of being an NFL quarterback and some of the other pressures pro athletes face when the helmet is off. It's a podcast, and you can get it free on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and at kslsports.com. When it comes to investing in innovation, trust the experts. RoboGlobal provides laser-focused investment portfolios that deliver access to robotics, AI, and healthcare innovation globally. The HTech portfolio captures the technologies transforming the medical space, providing unique exposure to best-in-class companies. Investors, turn to this diversified approach backed by research from the experts. Learn more today at RoboGlobal.com HTEC. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Dara Brustein. So one of the fundamental and foundational things that I think is critical to being a successful person in however way you define that is by being a generous human and being a giver. So I mentioned Adam Grant's book earlier, Give and Take. He put study to the reason why I will say that quite quickly and possibly. So read it if you challenge or question why I'd say that. Dara, thanks for making time. Thanks for taking time. So author, entrepreneur, all sorts of things you've done. Uh, I know we probably can't cover everything in the episode today, but I do want to hear about you started Equitable Payments. You've got your Network Under 40 group. You wrote the Finance Whiz Kids book that I'm getting for my kids now. You write for Forbes Thrive Entrepreneur. You're launching this new virtual summit. You're writing a book. Um, what I really want to know is what you do in your spare time. I spend a lot of my spare time traveling, as I know that you know because we're friends, that I'm typically on the road 50 to 60% of the month, and it's usually derived from pleasure, not from business, and then I work along the way. So that's where a lot of my spare time goes, and then when I'm not traveling or when I am traveling and have additional free time, I'm either exploring or reading. I'm a big old nonfiction book nerd. I love to do acro yoga. I love to take walks. I also really love like one of my, I'd say my primary guilty pleasure is reality TV. It's how I turn my brain off. <laughs> what's a, what's a nonfiction book that's, that's a keeper? Oh, so many. I'd say my absolute favorite and the one I reread the most is the four agreements. And it, if mm. you've not read it, mm -hmm. I'd say do it and reread it. It's so simple and so complex all at once. I also love the alchemist. I love give and take by Adam Grant. I could go on and on. I'm actually sitting surrounded by all of my books right now. So I could just like go. <laughs> Love it. Those are, those are great titles. Um, well, let's do, let's cover a little bit of where you've been in life so far. And then, and then let's talk about what's on the docket. So uh, tell me about equitable payments. You started with your twin. Um, how big did that end up getting? We grew it into 38 states and we started from nothing and we still own the company we had a ton of ups and downs throughout the course of the nine plus years that we've owned and operated it. And it's been a huge feat and challenge to get to that 38 state mark. And now we are really fortunate to be able to passively run it. And, and um, tell people what it does. Sure. It's a credit card processing brokerage. So anytime you as a customer pay a business with a credit card, we set up that service for them, whether it's in person, online or by phone. 
And the brokerage model was the differentiator for us that we overlaid the tried and true brokerage idea that you'd have familiarity with from insurance, for example, and brought that to credit card processing, which hadn't been done before. So we all know the statistics. Most businesses in America don't make it to five years. Um, what, what do you credit, you know, making it to nine years so far on? Uh, in part, consistency and persistence. I think that's such a baseline formula for success in the workplace that if you are not persistent and you're not willing to get up and keep moving past the challenges, like for us, one of the biggest challenges I remember is year two, we had this one whale of a client who I think 85% of our revenue was tied to, which was mistake number one. <laughs> and we lost them completely out of the blue. And I was devastated because as you can imagine, if you're an entrepreneur yourself, you know, you put your blood, sweat, tears, soul, everything into the businesses that you're creating. And I really cared deeply about every customer and every relationship. And when they left, it felt like this rug was pulled out and that all of the momentum and inertia that we'd created was immediately gone. And it's as though we had been right at the beginning again. And that wasn't the last that we had two embezzlements happen that pretty much also wiped us out at two different points later in time. So we continued to have these experiences over the course of the initial five years, I believe it was, where we almost started back at zero and in some cases did start back at zero. And were it not for my persistent belief that what we were doing was good, that the service was valuable, and that we could continue to find success again, then I wouldn't have continued. And, you know, that also took me debunking my own disbelief in myself at times, my own insecurities. It took me telling my family who was lovingly telling me to quit <laughs> that I wasn't going to. And that can, those can all be really challenging. They were certainly challenging for me, but that was the key to us having the success that we do now. So at that moment that losing 85% of your revenue moment, um, that is, you know, kind of that defining moment inflection point where so many folks would throw in the towel. Um, do you recall any of the things that you told yourself or did you read anything or did you talk to people? What, what do you feel like got you through that? Well, I remember telling myself that I was a failure and that I wasn't going to come back from this and that everyone would know and it'd be really embarrassing and that I had a lot of financial scarcity ideas in my mind that were terrifying me. And I literally was on the bathroom floor crying in a pool of my own little tears. And that's really uncommon for me. Like typically I'm not much of a crier and I don't really let myself like wallow in that way. So I remember calling my mom, who was the one who thought she was saying the thing that would be supportive, but in, but it wasn't. It was the thing that fed into my own self-doubt of, do you think that you should really keep going? And instead of me continuing the conversation with her because I recognized this wasn't going to fuel me positively, she introduced me to a friend of hers who was a life coach. And at the time, I didn't know anyone who was a coach. And this woman, Barbara, and I got on a phone call then and multiple times after where she quite literally helped pull me off of the bathroom floor and helped me to see the future and helped me to look at it more optimistically than I was in that really depressed moment. Yeah. When you think about someone like that, you know, for folks who haven't had someone good to talk to in that way, um, you know, the whole world of coaching can feel so woo woo 
to people. Um, for folks who who don't know how good it can be, what what would you have to say? Well, I love that you mentioned woo woo because it's something that I think can be a really big turnoff for people. And I've always gravitated away from things that might be traditionally considered woo woo for better or for worse. So what I came to learn through that experience is that one, in general, for anything, we shouldn't consider any title to be one stereotype that covers everyone underneath it. So I might have had this expectation at that time, I don't recall, honestly, it was so long ago, but I probably did, that a life coach was just this, you know, really highfalutin, hard to understand, not tangible or actionable, certainly wasn't going to speak on my level type of person. And I learned from this experience with Barbara that that wasn't the case at all. Really, she was just a fantastic listener who was able to speak back to me what I was saying in a way I wasn't able to see it. So a way I like to say it is she was able to see my shadow or the spot on which I stood that I couldn't see because I was standing on it. So she gave me a lot of perspective that was hard for me to see because I was so deeply entrenched in it. And she was completely unbiased because she had no skin in the game. She had no real stake. And so it was almost like what you'd think of as a therapist, ideally, but you're not necessarily going through the wounds and the traumas from childhood. And it was more of this tangible, actionable, strategic look forward. So it really helped me reshape the idea that it didn't have to be woo-woo to dream bigger or look forward or figure out your next steps and strategies just because someone had the title life coach. And then going from that, you, you end up building network under 40 and, and then later network over 40. Um, you know, getting a professional networking organization, you tell me if I'm using that title correctly, but getting it to 30,000 people who have been through this, um, where do you feel like you benefited from all the ups and downs at equitable payments to build network under 40? Absolutely. It was confidence that hmm. when I launched network under 40, I had been in business with equitable payments for a number of years and having the asset of my twin as my business partner in the first environment of being an entrepreneur really helped me to offset my fears and doubts about here's the things that I'm not good at or I don't know anything about yet. I had never studied business, for example. So there was a lot that I knew I didn't know, but I wasn't confident that I was going to be able to tackle it all alone. And so having a business partner who was my twin, who had opposite skill sets really gave me the confidence to learn a lot really quickly and the ability to do so, which translated into more confidence. So when Network Under 40 happened, it wasn't intended to be a business. It actually was an accident. A friend from college called me out of the blue after she had graduated from law school and she had moved back to Atlanta where I live. And she said, how do you make friends after college? Everywhere I go, I'm getting hit on or sold to, or everyone is my parents' age, or they're all also attorneys. I just want to go out and meet other like-minded people who are my peers, and they're not going to check one of those boxes that I just shared with you. And I really lamented for her. I understood because I had spent so much time in the quote-unquote professional networking environment growing the credit card processing company and often felt the way that she did, and none of that really felt great. So I started Network Under 40 because I felt like I could create a solution to her problem and because I think my gift in the world is as being a connector. And so I felt like I have a solution that might work for this problem that you have. Why not just try to put it out there? And it turned into a business by accident because of the popularity of it. And I think it, you know, two things I learned from that. One was, you know, I had the ability and the skills and the gifts to make a business successful. And I learned that from business one. 
And number two, I learned from it that you don't have to go into something necessarily plotting out its entire future, but instead it's more that lean methodology of go in, just try, see what works, see what doesn't, and keep iterating and building off of that. And then over time, I realized I had this profitable business that I grew, as you said, to 30,000 people, and we operated in a number of cities. And it just evolved organically because I was open and I allowed myself to be a vessel of a resource that someone needed that I had already had the ability to do. So that's definitely what I learned from that. Um, on that one, I do have a question. You know, so many times uh, when some of us have been successful in one business, um, we're surprised by the different challenges of doing another one. Did you experience that as well? Definitely. The first business is business to business, which is very different than the second, which is business to consumer. And I learned a lot, probably the hard way about having a consumer as a customer, having a smaller ticket item be your primary component of your business. Like we sell event tickets for 10 to $20 on average. So for a long time, that was our primary source of revenue until we added a sponsorship component. But you know, when I was focused explicitly on the primary customer who was the event attendee, I ran into a lot of walls of, okay, how do we get this message out in a way that we can still be profitable? And how do we make a really high value experience at a really low cost ticket price? And then also, I had never grown a team before in the way that I needed to, to make Network Under 40 operate successfully. So as we grew into markets, I had to really entrust a lot into someone in that location who was distributed from where I was. I had to trust that they would take the intellectual property I gave them and use it well and not run off with it, whether or not contracts were in place. I had to believe that they would be a great embodiment and extension of the brand. And there's just a lot of letting go and delegation that had to happen and a lot of times where I would go into a market, for example, and we'd fall on our face and it'd be a really big disaster and would have to figure out what can I learn from this to keep going. And in many cases come to realize a bit like I realized with the bathroom floor crying incident with equitable payments that people just weren't paying as much attention as I thought. So each time I would have some fear spike up about how are other people going to perceive this? Are they going to think that we don't know what we're doing? I realize most people aren't paying that much attention and they forget very quickly. So none of that ended up mattering. Yeah. Why do you think it is so often as leaders that it can be, feel hard to give up some control? Whew. On the one hand, I think there's a lot of pride of ownership that you did this, that you worked tirelessly in many cases to create something to the point that it's big enough that you can bring other people on to help expand the vision. And that really becomes this crux point of, do I want to take that risk to allow this to grow or scale beyond what I can do alone? And then it takes a huge leap of faith for some of us that are holding on tightly. And then secondarily, I think there's just this natural letting go that you have to do and a recognition that most people won't do it exactly like you do it. And sometimes they won't do it as well. And other times when they don't do it exactly like you do it, it might actually be better. And sometimes it's just ego, I think, that I'll speak for myself, that there can be times where I think, well, my way has to be the best way because it's gotten me to this point. But don't take into account at all times that someone else's way might actually be better and they have a fresher perspective or a more refined skill set in a certain area that's going to make it grow further than I could have myself. 
Yeah, no kidding. Um, so obviously very successful for, for a young entrepreneur. How did writing for Forbes and Thrive and Entrepreneur come about? I'm a deep believer that most opportunities happen through your network and pretty much every time I've had a door open for me, it's been because of someone in my network and this is no different. So I remember being on a trip to LA and meeting with a guy who's in an organization that I'm a part of called the Young Entrepreneurs Council. We'd never met before. We literally just met through the Facebook group and he invited me to lunch and we were having lunch and he said, oh, I was doing some research on you and I saw that you'd done some writing before. I'm a contributor to Entrepreneur. I know they're looking for other writers. Would you be interested in me making an introduction to you to my editor? And I was blown away. Like I had never really considered writing for an outlet like that, but I'd always loved writing and felt like it could be this really great platform, one, to just exercise that muscle, and two, to elevate other people's ideas and brands and give them that platform that perhaps they wouldn't have had otherwise. And then as a transitive outcome of that, I, I learned by doing it, that it also had this really great impact for me of elevating my own brand and my own work in a way that I hadn't expected or anticipated, or that wasn't my primary goal in the first place. Yeah. Um, well, what, what a, you know, what a great platform as well, right. To be able to spread some of the things you're working on. Like, um, did you start give it forward? Was that you? Yes. T tell me about that. So one of the fundamental and foundational things that I think is critical to being a successful person in however way you define that is by being a generous human and being a giver. So I mentioned Adam Grant's book earlier, Give and Take. He put study to the reason why I will say that quite quickly and passively. So read it if you challenge or question why I'd say no, that. No, no, great. It's a great book. I love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And so I started Give It Forward, much like Network Under 40, as a bit of an accident basically what happened was there were several times in my recent career history where I found myself in a bit of a slump where either I was feeling lost or feeling like I wasn't growing or I was just kind of down or things weren't going well for some reason or another. And each time that was the case, I would commit to myself to spend 30 days giving. And what I mean by that is one person every day, I would proactively reach out to them and say, hey, I'm committed to giving to someone in my network once a day for 30 days with no strings attached. You know, Maybe I can help you get closer to one of your dreams, goals, ambitions, or otherwise. How can I help you? And certainly there was a plethora of reactions of there's got to be strings to no way to I have no idea. But in many cases, people would open up to me and share, you know, I'm having this challenge right now. Like one person said, my babysitter quit and I need someone tonight. Can you help me find one too? I've had this lifelong dream of playing on every of the 100 top golf courses in the United States. You live in Georgia. Can you get me on Augusta National? For anyone who knows about golf, which I don't really, I came to learn that Augusta National is one of the hardest courses in the world to play on. <laughs> and so this gentleman put me on this interesting mission and I was committed to trying and the one thing I told him from the beginning and I told everyone was, I'm not promising that I can be a magic fairy and I'll wave my wand and it'll just appear, but I will promise to do my best to try. And so for someone like him, I spent months chasing down every lead I had to people who either were members at Augusta National or knew a member. And I ultimately failed on the one hand because I couldn't get him to play. And I followed up with this guy, Sean, and I said, Sean, I'm really sorry. I've tried my absolute best and I just can't make it happen. 
And instead of being upset at all, Sean's response was, I am blown away by the fact that you have spent this much time and energy and leveraged all these resources to try and make this dream of mine come true when you have no investment in it yourself. And Sean and I now have this really deep, great relationship in a way that before was really fairly surface level, simply because I asked and followed through on that promise. And so I give those examples because then last summer, I mentioned it on Facebook. I said, listen, I've done this many times before, and this time I want to do it in community. And so I said, who wants to join me? And within 24 hours, about 300 people said they wanted to do it. So I started a private Facebook group and said, let's all share about our experiences, the challenges, the, the wins, the everything in between that are resulting from your experience in doing this. And it was this beautiful thing that turned into this Give It Forward movement where people would say things like, I have a renewed sense and faith in humanity because, you know, things were tough in the United States, especially at that time. And a lot of people were down and their outlook on life might have shifted or changed. And so the second they started connecting with people and engaging and going more deeply from this generous place, the more they saw that they had a lot to offer in the world, that places where perhaps they thought, who am I to give these things? I don't have that many resources or connections. They realized that they did. Or they realize that sometimes it's the smallest things, like someone asking for someone to just listen to them because they needed someone to just be there for them. Or other little things that we might find trivial were really deeply meaningful to someone. And it created not only deeper relationships for them in this new empowered sense of what they have to offer in the world and this new spirit about it, but it also created a community amongst the people who were doing it, which was really powerful. You know, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about times when I've done something for someone else and like maybe I haven't had like the best attitude going into it, um, you know, some, <laughs> but it seems like by the end of it, I like it more than the person who I was helping, <laughs> you know, like it ultimately ends up being like this thing that was better for me than it was for them to spend the time and go the extra mile. It's almost like better when there is no transactionalness to it, huh? Totally. And it's interesting. I think it's a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that I'll butcher, but something along the lines of it's this fascinating turn of events or this unique universal way that when we give to someone else, we can't help but give to ourselves. Like it's just a thing that happens as a natural outcome of it, that when you do good for others, you selfishly or unselfishly get something out of it because there's so much joy that you receive in return. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, listen, um, I know we're about up with time for, for part one of the interview, but uh, give people just a teaser. I know we're, in the next interview, I want to ask about the virtual summit and, and the book you're writing. Um, can you give people a bit of a teaser of, of some of the names who are going to be in the virtual summit? Happily. We've got Deepak Chopra, Adam Grant, who we've referenced, Kat Cole, who's COO of a billion-dollar food brand, Ronnie Turioff, who's a two-time Olympian and NBA champion, and Jen Sincero, who's the New York Times number one best-selling author of You Are a Badass, among 45 others. Wow, that's awesome. So uh, let's, let's cut it off there. Everybody, please tune back in and, and catch part two of the interview.
Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.375%, APR 4.65%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate subject to change. Pay 2.13% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 30. 